Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. Hey, I'm Robert Kraft. We're back from our little break. This is Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. Checking in with composer Carol. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Composer Carol, you're just a little... You need a t-shirt that says... Hey, guys. You're just a little square (laughs) on my computer these days. And Kenny, you too. I hope we get to hang together. I'm assuming we will. Someday. We're still still playing it safe. Um, But we're very excited about our guest this week. Um, I know, Robert, you spent some time with... uh, the maestro working on uh, his huge films, of course, for Fox, Slumdog Millionaire and 127 Hours. He's a two-time Oscar-winning mm-hmm. composer and uh, one of arguably one of the highest-selling record producer musicians in history. Uh, A.R. Rahman is joining the show today. And yep. uh, our furthest guest ever on the show. He's joining us all the way from India. Exactly, from Chennai, which is the home of his incredible school he's got a foundation and a school that is bringing along a new generation of musicians and it also just shows in addition to being one of the biggest composers on the planet and a brilliant musician truly brilliant ar is a very soulful human being and an educator and an empathic he's a global icon he is and deservedly so i've spent a little time, not enough with him, but uh, he's just a great guy. He's just great. I'm so excited to have him. You just you won't believe what he went through and and how he became what he is today. Uh, so very excited to get to our conversation with Ar. But first, uh, we want to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers. Many of those composers that uh, join us every week here on the show. Spitfire has released two new editions of their best-selling BBC Symphony Orchestra, including a Discover edition. That's what I'm waiting for right now. It's a whole symphony orchestra at your fingertips for just 49 bucks. And if $49 is out of your current budget, you can complete a form on the Spitfire website and get it free in two weeks. Yeah, it's pretty awesome and uh, unprecedented. So really cool for uh, people who want to get started or just want to try out Spitfire or, you know, all kinds of different sounds in there. We also want to mention Spitfire's new composer magazine, its videos and written interviews they've done with composers for shows like Ozark and The Handmaid's Tale. Also, uh, they have a new one up with Justin Hurwitz from La La Land, who we had on the show last year. Of course. And it, most important for our listeners, have we got a deal for you. It's 20% off your first purchase. Good on well over 50 different Spitfire libraries. So you just use the promo code SCORE2020. That's SCORE spelled out and then the numbers 2020. It's a limited time offer. So be sure to use that promo code, SCORE2020, to elevate your music. And uh, stick around after the show today. We're going to play you a little clip of, uh, we have a new clip today, the Spitfire Solo Strings Library. We're going to play you a little snippet of uh, a cue they put together. Mm. They're going to show you what uh, the package includes with those cues. So stick around after today's show for that. Um we have a lot to get to, of course, coming up in a bit. A.R. Rahman is joining us. Uh, 
I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you that I've been watching the show Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime, which is really interesting, and it's another amazing job by the maestro Philip Glass. The The score is really great, and the show is interesting. It's It, it kind of threw me for a loop, no pun intended, but the... The first episode starts off and you're you're following a group in a town, a, a family, and then as each episode moves on, the show stays in the town, but it's following different characters in the town. And I'm not quite mm. sure. I'm not through it yet, but I'm not quite sure if it's all going to wrap together, but it's it's really interesting how it it each episode has kind of a through line that that pulls you into the next one and and a character from the last episode. Um, but you should check it out. The score is really great, and I feel like maybe the show isn't getting as much as much praise as it should, just because maybe because it's on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure. Have you seen it, Robert? I haven't, but I've seen. I actually saw the trailer before one of the many shows I'm watching on Amazon Prime, and thought I have to check it out. Uh, and of course, a little shout out to Maestro Philip Glass, who. It's kind of perfectly named because he may be one of the first people to give us an idea of what music that is sounding like it's looped would be like because of his repetitive. Even though it wasn't looped, his music, it's repetitive. So uh, those those systems that he would devise of repeating notes were kind of looped. So Tales from the Loop, music by Philip Glass. I think we're lucky to have another composer with us for this pre-conversation a very interesting composer yeah we've been we've been doing this a little bit uh on this season of the show where we uh we feature another composer uh robert and i have both been watching homecoming which is also on amazon prime season two season two season one didn't have a composer joining us now is the composer of season two of homecoming he's also the composer of the last black man in san francisco which got rave reviews we're so happy to be joined by Emil Moseri. Emil, thanks for coming on the show today with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be Can here. Can we give Emil some applause? I think we need a kind of, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah I like that. Well, we got the studio audience just standing by. I got to get one of those. I got to get one of those. Emil, we've, we've been real interested. I have been real interested. I think before we get to homecoming, I want to tell you that I saw The Last Black Man in San Francisco and thought two things. A, what an amazing film. You know, who is this filmmaker? And, and and following that, sort of who are these actors and who wrote this? I mean, that is an extraordinarily interesting movie. But the composer was a name I hadn't heard before. Mm. And uh, and the score was mind-blowing. And I can tell you a couple wow, of reasons that it was mind-blowing for me. But first of all, I'd just be curious real quick, how did the director of Last Black Man in San Francisco, find you? Uh, it's a good question. So, yeah, Joe, uh, Joe Talbot, the director, yeah. had found me through Plan B, actually. Well, he'd, he'd, he'd uh, heard some of my music. I'd written um, some music for a show on HBO called uh, Random Acts of Flyness uh, for, yeah. for a guy named Terrence Nance, brilliant guy. And... Um, Joe was a fan of some of that music. He was looking for uh, composers for his film. He talked to a few different people. And then 
Christina O, the producer of Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, put me in touch with Joe, and uh, I met him, and we'd hit it off, and then we just hit the ground running. Um, I yeah, know. I'm so glad you like the film. It's a, it's definitely a, a special one, and uh, close to to my heart, and and um, all the people that worked on it too. It was it was my first film. It was Joe's first film. It was Jimmy's first film. Christina's first you know, film, the, the DP, Adam, every, it was all of our kind of first rodeo. And we were kind of like, um, learning how to do it as we went. So I think it will always be the most special one, you know, that's fantastic. I'm curious what your background is, um, before we get to homecoming, which we both have been watching and loving and, and oh, cool. loving the sound of it. But, um, just quickly for our listeners who who don't know your background, including us, um, where did you grow up? What's your musical background, and and how did you get into film music? It's a good question. Uh, I grew up in Westchester, New York, about an hour north of the city. Um, I uh, started playing drums when I was ten, and and I started playing bass, and I've been playing in bands my whole life, and I got interested in film music when I was a teenager. Um, mainly with, um, Danny Elfman's Edward Scissorhands. That was like the, the most mm. romantic score. Still one of my favorite scores. Um, mm, mm, mm. and then kind of got into, to Nina Rota and through the Godfather and then found all those Fellini movies and all his great scores he did for Fellini. And, and then I studied film scoring in school at, at college and, and, um, in Boston at Berkeley college of music. And then I, I, are you, you went to Berkeley as well, Carol? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So composer um, Carol Berkeley. That's right. How long were you there? Uh, I was there from 2014 to 2017. So three years. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I was there for three years as well from 2003 to 2006 or something. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I, so Just you missed. you had an interest in film music. You didn't. You weren't a musician who accidentally got asked to score a film. This is something you wanted to do. It's something I wanted to do, but I hadn't. You know, I, I I'd studied film scoring. I studied classical composition in school. I'd left school in two thousand six, two thousand seven, and 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 played in bands for for a decade or more. Um, which I which I still do. I did. I didn't. I didn't real. I didn't leave school and start scoring films. Um, I got. I kind of moved away from it and came back to it a decade later, uh, mainly through through Terrence Nance. Um, I'd worked with him on. Uh, I contributed some music to his feature film in 2013 called "An Oversimplification of Her Beauty." And then I'd, I'd written some music for some short films of his. He made a music video for my band. And then Random Acts of Flyness got, got picked up on HBO. And then I was one of the composers, uh, one of four other composers as well that worked on that show for Terrence. And that was that happened right as I moved to Los Angeles. So I moved to LA and I had this show on HBO and I was trying to get an agent and trying to get my trying to 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 um run with that and uh that's how i got connected with joe and last black man and so so it was i kind of stepped away from it and then and then it found me again 10 years later but i'd been i've been writing music the whole time and 
And so fast forwarding now, um, first off, were you a fan of Homecoming? Had you watched season one when you figured out that you might be composing or writing the score for season two? I, I hadn't watched it, but my, my wife was a big fan. And then um, she to- I had, she'd watched it and I, I hadn't seen it yet. And then when I got the, the uh, opportunity to, to or just got the interview for the job, then I binged it in, you know, in four days first <laughs> season and I fell in love with it. And I was like, uh, now I was like, now I have to get this job. I mean, I, I wanted it before that, but after seeing the show, also just the use of music in the first season was so. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring that up a little bit because I remember watching season one and something I always do whenever I start watching something is I immediately go to IMDb and I look at who's involved, uh, especially the composer. And there wasn't a listed composer, and I kind of just thought, oh, that, that's odd. Um, but come to find out through an article that you shared about you, um, that the first season, which was directed by Sam Esmail, who's the mm-hmm. Mr. Robot, the mind behind Mr. Robot, this was a mashup of scores from great composers, including like the likes of Bernard Herrmann, and it was it was pretty it was pretty bold to do something like that just for licensing and and not being able to have full control over the score you're you're sort of sampling but what what did you make of that when you first watched season one did when you were listening to that as a composer well i i had known that they they'd done that i'd been told that they'd done that because the first question was when i when the when the when i found out that that kyle the director was was interested in talking to me about doing it um was like who was the it's the second season so who's the composer in the first season so i knew that there wasn't a composer and i knew that they had mashed up all these classic noir scores but i didn't know which ones and i didn't know i didn't know how they used it and then when i saw it it's it's such a big voice in the show the music you know is they did an incredible job maggie phillips too and ben is a music supervisor and ben and christine and, and ben zales is a uh, music editor they that worked on season one as well and they did an amazing job of piecing that together because it felt like score you know but it, but I think there's there's only so much you can do in that I mean you, you forfeit some control when you're when you don't have a composer scoring to picture and Taylor making music to, to picture so I think with season two Kyle took over as the director and I think he loved the way that they, they did it in season one. I think he just thought that he, he wasn't sure of how he's very humble when he talks about it. He says, I don't think I could have done that again. Like as masterfully with, 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 with the needle drops. Hmm. So and he had seen last black man in San Francisco and he was a fan of that score. So when we talked, we, we sort of clicked. And for me, that was such a huge appeal to doing this show too, because I mean, you always want to pick something that's you always want to do something that's that's challenging and scary and exciting and what could be scarier than trying to do my version of a Bernard Herrmann score or like you know or to try try to to rise to 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 that challenge of of um, making this classic film music that that in the first season was so rich and so filled with such incredible music so that was- you know in some ways what you're articulating is what happens when a composer inherits the first cut of a movie and there's a John Williams cue over the, okay. you know, 
that scene and there's a Tommy Newman cue over that scene and yeah. you have to not only rise the occasion, you have to beat it and then you have to walk into the room where everybody I'm, looks slightly yeah. downcast because it's like, well, you know, one of the best cues ever written is actually kind of working in there. And you go, <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait a minute, dude. You I know, know it well. I know it well. You know, which, I mean, Last Black Man had all kinds of incredible temp music in it before I met Joe. You know, it had Philip Glass and Johnny Greenwood and Nyman and a lot of incredible stuff. So yeah, it's it's hard. I, I I'm trying to when whenever possible. Um, get in early, you know, in, in projects. So to, to, to avoid that, you know, but, but at the same time, I, you know, temp music is also, it, it, it can be, it can be daunting to the blank page is also daunting. So to know a director's sensibilities and taste is like, like temp music can be very helpful, but um, with homecoming, I didn't have with homecoming season two. I didn't have temp music. I started writing before mm. they started shooting and same thing with this other film that I I finished or around it was right, working on this around the same time as Homecoming called Minari, which hasn't come out yet. Wow! I, tell us about that. So that that was that's another A twenty four Plan B partnership and production. Um, but that film, I Christina had brought me on board and I'd met the director Isaac before they started shooting, I, and I started writing music to this just from reading the script. Nice. And Harry Ewan, the editor who's, who edited um, Minari's incredible editor, had uh, essentially temped the whole film with my sketches. So the very first cut I, of, the, of the film that existed was 75% my sketches that I'd written for the film and 25% actually music from Last Black Man in San Francisco because he, he thought it, you know he wanted to use temp music that was my temp music which turns out in a way is actually more of a challenge to beat to beat somebody else's cues to like to beat something that you did for something else you know was was also was it was a challenge as well but but overall harry saved my life you know just if the, if by temping the film with my music that then the director is is has that you know the the, the music is baked into the batter of the film in a way he's and they're editing to it too you know they're extending scenes so that the music can breathe more and that was an absolute dream i would i would like to do that um from here on out if possible but every project wouldn't all composers i think yeah yeah i think you've just articulated though for kind of future generations we have covered in this little chat the varieties of ways that a composer can inherit a film one is it's been tempted, or the first season's been tempted with the greatest composers ever. That's so yeah. you have to beat that. Number two, you can get a film that's just you know famous movie cues. Okay, you have to beat that. Number three, you get a film with your own music tempted in, which I've heard before. Which oh no, how do I? That was a, such a different time and a period. Yeah, how do you a, do that? But yeah. Beat that? Uh, number four, you get nothing and the script, and you get to write from the ground up and I realized that there is a number five which I've seen which is you have to beat songs that have been tempted in you know they put they drop the needle on gimme shelter which they say yeah. we can't 
uh, license this, right, because it's too expensive. But can you beat the feeling that that gives the scene to which you see composers get <laughs> razor blades out to say, oh, Jesus. Yeah, man. Well, they're not temping with, with, with you know, sludge, you know, and, and, and right. like, they're, they're temping, you know, with the best stuff out there, like Gimme Shelter, whether it's, you know, the Stones or or Philip Glass or whatever, you know, like, because, and I think, and I've talked to editors about this too. They're using, they're also a lot of times an editor is trying to sell an edit to the director too. And they're like, you know, this, this piece of music is really making it work. It's really strong and it's, and, and they're editing and there's a rhythmic quality to it. So, you know, I understand, I understand the process and, and it, and it can be helpful I do, I do prefer, obviously, as any composer, or most composers, I imagine, would prefer no temp to, to temp. But um, yeah, the best thing is is just getting sitting down with a director and uh, listening to music, getting calibrated, finding out where those overlaps are, finding out what they love and th- that you also love. What was your process with, with Homecoming? Because you're you you are coming off of a first season that wasn't just tempt; it was actually scored with, yeah, with these famous old scores, and you know, with the likes of Bernard Herbin. But you're coming on to start with a blank page, but you also you kind of have to keep the vibe of the show. Which, if you haven't watched Homecoming, it's it's unlike any show I've seen. It's it's really, at least lately, um, it, it's it's really off putting. It purposely makes you feel uncomfortable. It's shot differently. I mean, there you don't see a lot of uh, film and TV shot with zoom lenses. And anytime those zooms are happening, it, it really makes you feel uncomfortable. It's very Hitchcocky. And um, where do you begin to to write when you have to kind of base it off of season one, but also you're coming in as a new voice? Yeah, well, you know, I found it helpful actually to just, um, you know, it's like when 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 it's a completely blank page, it's more daunting to me. Like it was, it was not, it was a kind of a nice combination of like there were no themes, there was no melodies since there was no composer in in, in season one. There was nothing that I needed to to emulate, or there was nothing I needed to to bake into my to. So I had a complete bank, blank page melodically and 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 uh, thematically and all that stylistically i had i had a, a world that i that i had to exist in it had to season two had to feel like season one so i i i got to just write music that was dark and unsettling and that was classic or you know in within those confines it, it was sort of i just sort of absorbed it like i didn't I didn't study, I didn't learn or study Herman's work or other Michael Smaller and these other great composers that they use their, their music in season one. I just kind of watched the show, internalized it, and then just wrote my version of that. Like I wrote my melodies and my themes and, and my, like what I would hope would be a modern version or a, my take on, on that style. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was also helpful because I just wrote a bunch of music in the spirit of that show. I had a whole season that I absorbed and I could just write a whole bunch of music in the spirit of the show and, and send these sketches to, 
Kyle and see what he was responding to and then and send them to, to, to Nathan and Matt, the two editors on the show, and they would start placing them in scenes and then I would they tend it back to me and then I would score a picture and, and con- there's a lot of music in that show. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's more than I more than I yes. realized. I was surprised um, by that. Even just yeah, looking no. at the the score that they released, w- combined with the needle drops, there, I think there's like an hour of music on the on what was released. How much music yeah. did you write for the show in total? Because there are only what is it seven or eight episodes at like twenty five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's seven episodes and there's about twenty five, you know, give, give or take twenty five uh, minutes each. So when I signed on, I I thought, okay, that's like you know, trying to equate it to a film, you know, like how, how much music is, are they going to need? How much is it going to be? But some of the episodes are like, there, some of the episodes are like 27 minutes long and there's 25 minutes of music in it, you know, like, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, you know, and some of the cues like are 14 minutes long, you know, it's like, it just, um, I didn't, I, I didn't know what I was signing up for. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not complaining because I, I, it was an absolute dream, you know, because you want that much as a composer. That's the composer's dream. You want, you, you want, I don't know. I, I, especially coming off of last black man, which has a lot of room for big music and a lot of montages, scenes without dialogue where the music can really sing. You know, those are the type of projects that I'm attracted to. I would want, I want the music to be big if, if it's appropriate, you know, you want to pick the projects where it is appropriate. So definitely not complaining. I'm 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 grateful for the opportunity. This kind of in some ways changes my last question, which is do you have a preference now that you've done one of each? And I'd like to ask this question in ten years too, when you're burnt out on one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh doing a film where you really have ninety minutes, even last black band I think was almost two hours mm-hmm. to develop uh a score kind of thematically and arranging istically or a TV series where it's, you know, episode to episode. But the reason that this question may not hold here is that there's so much music in homecoming. It's almost cinematic in some ways, but did you have any feeling? Was it even schedule wise or budget wise or uh, subject wise? Did you have a preference or were they both? They're different animals, different. you know. I I worked in TV with Terrence for Random Acts of Flyness, but but there was four other composers working on the show, right? And it was a lot of work, but um, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same thing. I wasn't. It was the nature of the show is different too. It's more of uh, sort of these vignettes and sketch based, and and it's not as much uh, like one theme, you know. It's well carry through each, throughout each episode into the next and, and so on and so forth. So, right. so with TV, I don't know. It's a, it's, I think I prefer. Don't say it. I'm going to work as your agent. You love them both for different I reasons. I love them both. I love them both. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate Robert that. asks you a question and then says, don't answer it. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. You're about I, to say, you know, well, and then I, four I, directors I, of one of them says, you know what? Who, what is, uh, what's that other guy doing? What did he just at? say about TV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love them both. Honestly, but like you, what you said, Robert, you hit the nail on the head that, you know, with Homecoming, it was very cinematic. 
And I think that you want you want those jobs where it feels like a film, you know. And I think that we're living in the golden age of TV, but but I think score is sort of catching up to that. Like the golden age of TV is, you know, because with TV it moves so fast, you need to write so much music, and the and the and the deadlines come quick and fast and furious. And so so a lot of times I think, and also music is notoriously you have the least amount of time and least amount of resources. You know, it's like, it's such an important piece, but, but it's always at the very, very end and very fast. So I think with TV for, for a while, um, like the, like I think scoring is catching up to the golden age of TV. And I think we're hitting the golden age of TV music. I really yeah, do. I, I think so too. Hey, Emil, I know that you were getting praise uh, from all over the place on Homecoming, but especially from the star of the show, uh, Janelle Monae, uh, who is yeah. an incredible artist. I was curious because of the stay-at-home orders when this released. Have you guys had a chance to meet? Have you we, did it, we, did you do any sort of thing with the crew? Because that's that's pretty cool praise to get from Janelle like that. Yeah, no, that was a dream. I mean, I've been a fan of hers for over a decade. I'd I'd met her at the homecoming rap party when they cool. finished before the pandemic, um, very briefly. And she was I, I had told Kyle when I had first um, we had the interview with Kyle that I was a I'd first seen Janelle perform. She was opening up for of Montreal, and uh, she just was she just was electric. She was just I'd never seen an opening act just blow the roof off a place like that she was just she sang a song on top of a stool completely acapella and then there was she also had this punk rock energy where she was and she was crowd surfing and she just it was one of the best performance i think she's one of the greatest living performers um so i had i'd been a fan of hers for a while and then kyle had told her that story that i'd seen that show so he introduced me and she said i heard you saw the show and she was very she met me at the same time she met Christine and Maggie and Ben, the the music supervisors and, and editors for uh, homecoming season one. And so she was like, I'm excited to be with my music people and like praising the work that they did on season one as well. I think what's interesting is that there is a new generation of composers and this sounds like as square as it is, but who have a foot in a lot of different worlds, film, TV, and records. I mean, Ludwig mm-hmm. doing the Childish Gambino records. Yeah, yeah, and, amazing. And uh, even Nick Bertel on Succession has been working on records, and Joe Trapanese. So yeah, just yeah. the fact that you're, um, that's a long-winded way of saying, get stay near your phone, man. Janelle's going to call you and say, hey, yeah, yeah. you know, on, yeah. my next, on my next record, would you mind... Uh, have your dream. No, it's it's very cool when you find out that people you admire or, or, or have admired for a long time are aware and, and and ideally fans of your work. That's like something that uh, it's very 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 grateful for when that happens. Well, we're we're certainly uh, fans of you. Yeah, we're and, fans, and yeah, I just thanks want so much. I want the listeners to know that he's now holding up a new sign that says "I like <laughs> film, TV, and records." Equally. Yeah, yeah. That's why film composers are our heroes at score the podcast because they rise to meet the challenge as you are doing man i think it's exciting that we got a chance to talk to you at this 
juncture. Oh, thank you. Um, we're looking for a film coming up called Minari. Minari, yeah. There's there's two films actually. There's uh, that haven't come out yet. One of them is Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, um, and the other one is Miranda July's new film Kajillionaire, which I'm oh, thrilled about. Yeah, that that those that one will be out in September, and then Minari it's TBD. Um, but, Super yeah. cool. Well, be sure to check out Homecoming uh, seasons one and two if you're not caught up. Available now on Amazon Prime, and uh, Emil's score is on all platforms, right? All yeah, yeah, it's on all the in all the places. And there's a lot of music there. Put it in your playlist. Have a listen. Uh, Emil's also on all the social media. Um, we've been we'll share his uh, Twitter page on our on our page there. But Emil, thanks so much for taking the time to stop by the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you guys. That was great. I mean, it's. It's lucky that we got Emil at this moment in his career, I think, Kenny, because that guy's a future draft pick. You know you're going to be hearing more from him. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to see both of those films and, and hear what he's done with them. Man, what a jam-packed show. We're going to take a break, and then coming back, we have the maestro of Mumbai, as you like to call him. Ah, yeah, so true. A.R. Rahman, two-time Oscar-winning composer, joining us all the way from India right after the break. Jai Ho! Hey, SCORE fans, I'm just wondering if you have a favorite question you've been dying to ask us. You know, you could send it to us in an email. You send it to scorethemailbox at epiclef.com. That's E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F. Come up with a good question. Kenny or I will do our best to answer it, and if we don't know the answer, we may make one up, you know, just to keep the program rolling. Better yet, you could even record the question yourself and attach that to an email. Include your name and your location, and you just might make an appearance on this season of Score the Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Rachel Portman. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We keep outdoing ourselves on the show. Last couple of weeks, we've had uh, guests joining us from the UK, but uh, we're now joined by our furthest guest ever on the show as we record here. He's an Oscar-winning composer uh, for films like Slumdog Millionaire. He also scored 127 Hours. And uh, he's also uh, worked with Robert Kraft on uh, those films as well. We're, we're so excited to welcome A.R. Rahman on the show. A.R., thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. A.R., listen, what a treat. Uh, personally, a treat just to see you, even though I'm seeing you on the other side of the globe right now. But uh, <laughs> just before we started, we were talking about how it must be late for you. You are 12 and a half hours ahead of us. So yes. that means it's nighttime. In, are you in Chennai? I'm in Chennai, yes. I'm with the family 
quarantining. <laughs> oh, yeah, I amazing. It must be so different. But what a treat to have you on the show. It's really been a dream of mine. And frankly, what we had originally planned, of course, was that we'd have you here after you performed in Los Angeles in May. But tell us, is that tour canceled, postponed? The tour, um, I think, um, in the interest of the safety of people, and um, we so we care for our audiences. And, of course, it's impossible to do a show. Even at that point, we f- I felt like we should postpone the show to next year, this whole tour. Um, because people come there with a lot of love and expectation and trust. And then I, I do extra prayer for people who come for my concerts and flight. Um, they deserve that because they come with all the love and expectations and enthusiasm for my concerts. Can you tell uh, our listeners what uh, an AR Raman concert experience is like? Is it film music? Is it your other music? Is it both? What What can people expect if they come out next year when you uh, come back? So back in India, I started in 92, 91. And uh, the way... Music is done here is a composer should compose the songs and the score, right? So the songs are all over the place. Like they are folk songs, Indian folk, Western discourse to um, motivational songs or club songs and everything. So these songs, um, I've done probably over 160 movies now. So some of the songs have become chart busters and they become part of people's lives. And when I go for these shows, mostly these songs are performed. Uh, less of score and most of songs and uh, more of songs and uh, what we do is uh, I find a band which um, we sit and work at rehearse with them to find new interpretations or, or new interactive um, uh, call and response kind of things so it's not the same thing which they hear but it's the same thing but it's not the same thing more musicality and more fun on stage more surprises so that's but my the show. songs actually I, I didn't really realize that the songs originally appear and first appear in a film and that's how they get first known. That's the radio in some ways. Exactly. So what we do is we release the songs. Um, it used to be like that at least when the, the age of cassettes and CDs, the songs used to come at least a month before and they'll get popular on radio. And if the songs are liked, people come for, for the movie like twice or thrice to experience the the visual and dance and music and the mix of the songs. So they are fans of even mixes. Oh, I love the mix of the songs. So I go for this. <laughs> that's that's really interesting because in some ways that ties way ahead to the fact that I actually had the opportunity to participate in the remix of Jai Ho. And I always wanted to ask you, and I've never had the chance until today. I was called (laughs) by Jimmy Iovine and Ron Fair at Interscope, where we had the soundtrack of Slumdog, uh, to come to the studio and uh, participate in the commercial single mix of Jai Ho. And which, which by got, the way, Jai Ho is the Oscar-winning song of Slumdog Millionaire. The huge international smash that AR wrote. And um, they informed me when I got there that they had 
decided to replace the singers that you had originally recorded with the Pussycat Dolls. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you are kidding, right? <laughs> um, I just thought they were literally, why would you do that? The record is perfect as it is. But for a lot of reasons, some of which maybe aren't for airing on this television show and this podcast, they had an investment in the Pussycat Dolls. I've never had a chance to ask you, A.R., how did you feel about that, and did they ask your permission? Well, um, le let's take, um, in my mind, there are two things running up. First of all, you have this crossover soundtrack, which doesn't happen usually. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, if it's just a movie song with a, with a very alien language for the English people, it's going to reach probably limited audience. Mm -hmm. And a thing like that, would make it even more popular. And then through that, they will come to the original. So my mind was working that way. Yes. <laughs> and I think I was right. I was right because I remember going to Australia the next year and then almost everyone recognized me because I, I've come in. I purposely wanted to be very in a very small amount in that video, just like five seconds or something. I said, don't put me more and put me separately. <laughs> even though Nicole was amazing to work with them. That's so interesting because I actually went to Austria probably 10 years later. I was in Vienna and I remember walking into some kind of electronic store and Jai Ho with the Pussycat Dolls was on and everybody's kind of, and I thought, boy, this is this, the mark of a hit that this many That's years cool. later you're hearing it. I do remember one other thing that I discovered when we put the original tracks up on the console and we were soloing them. I didn't realize AR and now I fundamentally understand how incredibly great a programmer you are and how high tech mm, that recording was. I assumed this was going to be a room full of players and we're going to have room sound on tracks. I didn't realize that it was recorded the way it was. And it sounded like there was incredible sequencing going on. Had you approached Indian music and authentic recordings with sequencing and computers for since the beginning? Yeah. The Okay, let me tell you the history. My father bought the first uh, Korg SH700 in Singapore in 1973-74 so he apparently got a free ticket to Japan he was he's from South India and he used to work in Malayalam movies Malayalam is a next state uh, Kerala state where uh, he was an arranger composer a musician and all this stuff and he was loved he would work in four or five places at the same time he had a Morris minor car and he would so he passed away in 76 I think overworking not sleeping not eating uh, he wanted to buy a house for his family so he did all that and he left. I was nine. Mm. And I had all this gear. I had the synthesizer. I had, a, you know, Yamaha double manual keyboards, Farfisa organ, all that stuff left. And my mother, being a very intelligent woman, at 26 she was widowed. And she found that everybody said, you have to sell all this stuff, put it in the bank, get the interest and live your life. Now your husband has passed away. She said, no, my son is going to learn this. Wow. I don't know what faith she had in me. <laughs> and yeah, this happened. And then I was left with all these toys. I grew up with uh, playing all these synthesizers and 
programming this stuff and getting electrocuted also sometimes <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> and so in 84, I was intrigued. I was playing like small, small sessions with my father's friends, like one of the gentlemen who recently passed away, MK Arjunan, and uh, Mr. Ilya Raja. So I had bought a music computer called the CX-5 Yamaha computer, intrigued by it, and it was a very, very tough one. You had to feed everything in it, you know, the gate time, velocity, note, octave, like probably for one note, you had to feed 10 things. And that was my first uh, computer, you know. And then I bought the MIDI keyboards, like Juno 106, which is a roll in two of them. Beautiful. And tried, you know, sequencing and then got my first major gear, which was the MC500 Roland and the S50 sampler, blah, 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 all the stuff. Yeah. Then my life changed. I felt like empowered, like this is the future, man. <laughs> I can sample stuff. I can create my own, you know, I can. How are you learning to use all this stuff? That's a good question. We didn't have any, there was no internet, of course. There was no, so to to even see what's happening in the, West, uh, in the Western world, there was one shop around 45 minutes away by cycling, you know, which would have a, a magazine called The Music Maker from England. Oh, wow. And I would go four times a month to see whether that mag has come because it used to get delayed. It used to come three months, four months afterwards. And I'd go buy that and read it. And now I was telling my kids how easy it is for them to download a PDF or to learn something on YouTube. It was not the case before. And then figuring out and, you know, the, the DX7 especially was a monster. Yeah. It's FM synthesis algorithm. Okay. All that stuff. And then came a time where uh, I worked with some directors who insisted that I, um, I was doing jingles, commercials. I had built my small studio by then, which is probably the next room, rather room. And, um, and that liberated me. I felt like, this is something which I never, you know, the sense of freedom that you can do your own compositions without being judged and you can only just hear it. You don't have to give it to musicians who will frown their face if it's not sounding good. So I'm, I was basically introvert and, and all this gave me the sense of freedom to uh, explore and experiment and fail and, and also, you know, get up and start kicking. And so this is my history. So my, whole thing started with, uh, and of course I was a big admirer of, um, switched on Bach, um, mm. you know, the, the Wendy Beautiful. Carlos records yes. and Vangelis and John Williams and Zimmer did, uh, the, the black, black night or dark night, dark night, black, no, not dark night. The first, uh, very long back, a beautiful hybrid score with brass rain or sample black rain. Is it? Yeah. Oh. yeah. I think that's a yeah, hybrid score, right? Hybrid score. So that's one of my favorite. It just opened up. And then there was another one called the Gothic, hmm. which again, I think it's Thomas Dolby. Oh, oh wow. You know, she blinded me with science. Science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had a strange operatic voice. And anyway, so all these things inspired me. And of course, um, so that led me to find my melodies through Indian classical, Western classical, folk, and at the same time trying to get the production of what it deserves in India. Because I said, like, when we listen to we listen to Western music a lot in India, we used to at least, 
and why don't they listen to our music and then i was trying to find reasons why they wouldn't listen to because it was all monophonic and it was ah. made for it was cut off at 7k because optical would never take the frequencies right and so when i started coming and i had a 16 track i said i don't care about optical i will do two mixes one for the movies and one for audio so all that that's happened. great sorry for the big answer no, no, that's, no, that answer that's is fabulous. And I wonder, did directors embrace your new approach? And did they feel that this, a more pop and a more radio-friendly approach to film scoring was appropriate for their films? Good question. So when initially when I was uh, doing stuff, uh, a lot of people will come and ridicule, ah, this one cell, you need to use, you know, the violin, the tablas and... You need to do all that stuff. Nobody's going to listen to the stuff. And then until I met my dream mentor, Mani Ratnam, whose first film I scored, and he mm-hmm. came in and said, he was very unsure. I don't know why he was unsure. Then later he revealed that. He said, whatever you played to me sounded so good. I didn't know whether it was the sound or the melody. So I had to go and in my brain, I had to, uh, what he called, split it up and check whether it's a melody or you're conning me with this beautiful sound. Hmm. So actually it was both, right? So it was a combination of things, which uh, was a new approach because before to record music, you needed a lot of musicians. Of course, I love musicians. And and in my first movie, I felt like somewhere I felt like it's going to be cult because, because of the director. Like whatever, he had so many followers and whatever he did was so cool at that point. And even now that uh, it's going to become a cult and I don't want people to think that now, you know, computers have come and replaced musicians, right? So I made sure that I used uh, brass and strings and Indian rhythms and everything so that when that becomes a success, I was sure it will become a success, but a lot, lot of people, lot of people said, no, it's not going to happen because the sound is different. And so that difference actually kind of clicked, luckily. Yes. <laughs> and I'm here where I should. Do you remember in those first few sessions, did you do pre-records and then have the orchestra put on headphones and play to program tracks or did you trigger it all live? Because that was a big moment um, in film scoring where the orchestras would sit down and instead of hearing silence and a click, <laughs> they heard program drums or synths. Which did you start with? Uh I think by from, from 87, 86, this whole programming drum sequences had already come into the Indian film industry, you know. We used to have uh, some program bass lines and rhythm section and orchestra used to be on top. So the orchestra was used to all this stuff. But I always get extra inspiration when I see the orchestra. Hmm. And you, you won't believe this, this ridiculous kind of work. Um, so some of the songs are scored and we write the... the the orchestrator comes in and he writes a score and then he goes and gives it to the orchestra. But since we had uh, seven hour sessions here and it is some of the composers like more old school composers had this amazing way of having the orchestra, making like making them like a live loop. So the, the rhythm section will be playing something and they'll say, oh, go, gamapa, gamapa, sariga, sariga. And sa pa 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 gama mama sa pa 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 gama mama sa ni ni ni. So they give us notes like this in in Tamil, and they would start playing that stuff. And when they're playing that stuff, the flute will be you go play tu 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 sa ga ga ri 
Amazing violin players 
who had to be the Gabriel and John McLaughlin. And so he said, why don't you guys back me up? And with that backing him up, we learned a lot of studio techniques when working with him on the album and everything. And uh, so that led to me asking Shankar, said, uh, I've heard about Berkeley. Do you know anybody there? I said, yeah, I'll get you this prospectus. And he gets me the prospectus and then he gives it to me and said, oh, this is my future. I told my mom, I'll build a studio for you. So you rent it out and I go to Berkeley and study and come. <laughs> so when all this happens, I build this little studio on top of my here. And when I was ready to go, my first movie offer comes in and says, like, and you get this biggest director, like he's like the Spielberg of India. And he comes in and says that I'm interested with your sound and your melodies. And so let's work together. And I said, okay, I have to ditch Berkeley. <laughs> Take this. What? And uh, of course, some, you know, like Confucius say that you involve someone, then they learn better. So uh, he was in a way, other than music, there's so many other things you had to learn in film scoring, right? Hmm. And uh, most of the things uh, I learned is from him, the, the building blocks of the foundation of how to tackle a scene and how to be innovative. I mean, I had it all, but he kind of cherry-picked things and placed it in a way and explained to me why this works better, mm. why, and you'd play me stuff like uh, Western classical music and Carmen and everything and say like, why don't we do something like this? So it was a gift to get somebody who's like a mentor and who's, who's paying you. <laughs> Were you... For, um talked out of doing this though i mean that seems like at the time going to berkeley versus working working on a movie were you do, you do you think you were ready for that or was anyone trying to steer you toward going to berkeley and not making that decision no i think berkeley was not that popular like very mm. few musicians would know about berkeley at that point of time and i wanted to learn i was interested in jazz and and all this stuff but then something told me that um you know because I was in the core of the industry, belly of the beast, but my interests were all outside, you know, African music, jazz and mm. American scoring and Italian. And so I think in a way I, I felt like I wouldn't be pigeonholed into just a jazz player or, you know, mm. so this was more. And also as an Indian composer, you expected to be a Michael Jackson, John Williams, hands over all put together. <laughs> So not like they don't pigeonhole, he's a film composer, he does only this genre of music, which is not the case here. We we are given the liberty, okay, if you can, do it. We're not going to judge you. It, it's only the, by the end, whether it gets popular or the impact of the movie, uh, people judge you by that, you know? Of course. So that was and a blessing. It all worked out because Berkeley gave you an honorary doctorate yes. several years later. And, um, <laughs> and, and there's so many friends in Berkeley. Oh, and, of course. Uh, it's one of the most inspiring schools, institutions ever, right? And and we have currently, as part of our team, Carol, who uh, not only went to Berkeley, but um, Carol saw you perform in Boston. Carol, didn't you see... Uh, yes, I did. 2015, Symphony Hall, Boston. I think I originally went because my a lot of my friends were performing. My friends were in the Berkeley Indian Ensemble, and I was just blown away. The YouTube uh, links of that are still popular. They're getting millions of Yukons. Yeah. Amazing. Crazy. And the way they interpreted the, my music was also beautiful. Mm. Did you come rehearse with students and teach them 
how to interpret the music or did they no i think uh do it themselves i think what's nice is like when my music came in there's another important thing when i came in there used to be a uh, little bands which used to take film songs and perform hmm. and they would spoil my music so badly and they would say oh it's all computer music we can't play that you know just so i think berkeley was one of the first uh performances i saw that they're taking everything out of respect and then enhanced it even more with musicianship and that was mm. lovely that's so nice it's interesting that it's a beautiful way to talk about what you've given back to students because i remember when we worked together i think that the km music conservatory was just starting you're right uh, i i remember because i i you will be able to correct me on the years but i think you said that next time i get to chennai of course i'd never been um i should come visit your school and i didn't know what exactly that meant but you explained that you had just started a school yeah. and can the school now is huge it is so it started in 2008 yeah and now we have almost uh, 300 to 400 people wow. and um Is it residential? Do they come and live there or are they local? Uh no, they do live but we don't have a the the dormitories and all the stuff. It's just mm-hmm. a school. There's like a college of technology, music and tradition. And um so the whole idea of that is like what I went through, I learned technology, I learned classical music and I I learned film scoring everything. So you get a more broader perspective of musicality or how to be in this real world. surviving as a musician rather than being left out um, I would like so to apply I would like to apply and attend <laughs> Please come the reason I asked if it if it's residential because I wondered if you know there's like a small bedroom nearby that I could crash on I would like to learn technology Indian classical music and music at in Chennai that sounds like a dream you, come you're true. welcome Oh, thank you You're so welcome, much. Are you an instructor at the school? I'm not. I I facilitate. I I sign the checks for pianos and technology. Yes, I bet. Is there a film scoring track that you can go to in addition to all that? Do they learn how to sync music to picture and score scenes? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. I think uh, right now we are also opening up a branch in Mumbai, which is going to do all that stuff. I see because I was going to volunteer of course to come help yeah, set please. that up that sounds like a good idea of course we met on slumdog millionaire and suddenly at fox there was a lot of excitement that we had a film coming in with basically the coolest director and the coolest composer in the world were working together on a movie and that's it we were How so excited how did that excited. happen <laughs> how did you guys connect so It's pretty strange actually. I think it's destiny like how they say in in Slumdog Millionaire. Mm-hmm. Um so Danny had tried to get in touch with me through um a couple of people you know sent me messages and I, it was the most busiest year for me. You know 2008 I was scoring these big movies and and we'd miss each other, you know like uh and he had shot the movie by then. And one day he just uh, emailed me and i said i'm in mumbai i'm in this hotel is it i'm in the same hotel so What? we meet in the yeah we meet in the lounge and he gives me this dvd and says it'll be a great honor if you score this he gives it to me and 
I'm exhausted because I'm doing so many movies. I'll see it a week later and call him and say, this is amazing. <laughs> and this is like, you know, three of my favorite movies put together, <laughs> you know. And so he says, are you scoring? I'll try. And he had, um, I think Danny again uses a lot of different songs from different elements put together. Mm-hmm. So I said, I want to score the whole movie. You know, mm-hmm. when I do a score here, I do the songs, I do the score, everything. He said, if you have the time, you can. I'm, you're welcome. And he said, and and then I started sending him ideas one by one. And he would just pick that stuff. And we met in London and finished the rest of the stuff. Just, I think the whole thing finished in three weeks. Was there temp music on that DVD? Had he temped in yeah. ideas and spotted some of the scenes? There were a lot of temps, but then the ones he took the stuff, he made a lot of adjustments, he changed the places, he did a lot of changes. And uh, the way he uses music is also very good. When it comes and it's really in your face, it's not a wallpaper, it's used as a character. And that's what I love about uh, Danny's taste also. He's so far ahead in music, uh, you know, Oh, so all his movies, yeah. are, the music is so important. And uh, who knew that Slumdog would become the phenomenon that it was, that you would win two Oscars? Yeah, was this the it? first time that your music was really introduced to, like, the United States? Because um, that, that movie just exploded. But I'm curious, were, were you known in the U.S. before that for your music? I'll tell you another story. So I did a... I was kindly invited by Sir uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber to write a s- score for Bombay Dreams, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a musical on my name. It was called Air Amans Bombay Dreams. And um, in 2001 and two, it was big. So it did two years in London and then it went to Broadway. In Broadway, I think it did a year. But the there were some changes made. They said, for American audience, we need something changed and all those stuff. So it didn't work the way it should have. And... I remember Andrew was very upset by that. And hmm. so he was the happiest. He said, they didn't get you 10 years back. Now they got you. It's great AR. And then he still fondly remembers that whole incident of how uh, Bombay Dreams went to London and uh, from hmm. London to America didn't do well and how this is actually a payback for, for all of us. Hmm. And then on 127 Hours, an amazing movie as well, did you score it? In India, did you meet Danny in London? Where did you physically write and record that? Was it the same process as Slumdog? So when uh, 127 was, uh, was happening, I had, I had a tour, actually. I was doing the Jeho tour. And I mm. would, uh, wherever we would, um, the weekends were busy, of course, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the other days would be, I would just set up the computer in whichever place we were parked. And I would jam with the guitarist and... Uh, so we got the score like that. And then after that tour, I think I spent again a couple of weeks in London, uh, near my Tuffle Park house. And he would come take the tube and come in and, uh, yeah. So the score was done again, same way in London, hmm. two weeks. And we, we finished the score after, after collecting all these pieces and ideas and putting it did all together. And how did your, um, scoring career or your, just career in general change after doing these films with Danny? Was there more of an interest from Hollywood? Were you getting calls for other types of works? Because these, I mean, Slumdog Millionaire made a huge splash 
in the United States, but also worldwide. Did, did your career change at all from that? It did change. And I think what happened internally for me was um, the power of the fame and my work actually led, uh, led me to uh, find other ways to explore uh, musicality. Like my problem with getting commissioned in a work was you get typecasted. Now, okay, AR comes and he does Indian work or he does orchestral work. or And usually these were not challenging enough for me. And I was thinking, why don't I start writing ideas? And of course, people have to go from step one. And then it's now 10 years since I've written my first story, which the, the trailer is out now called 99 Songs. It's a Hindi movie. And that's coming. So this whole change of going to film production and to probably write ideas where music can do a different role, do a different characterization rather than the same kind of things I get, do five songs or do a score, which is Indian based. So I wanted to change that. And is 99 songs, uh, songs and score by A.R. Rahman. Yeah. As, as well as written by, but I understand that you didn't direct it, but that you're starting now with Le Musk to direct oh, well researched. a very adventurous new project. Can you tell us a little about that? Because I, I watched the trailer and it looks ridiculously interesting and visual, <laughs> visually compelling as well as musically. And what a big shocker, you're at the forefront of new technology. I as think. you always are. I mean, though, <laughs> it's funny that you we can look back at the beginning of this podcast where you talked about inheriting all those keyboards and learning to program them. Now it sounds like you've moved into virtual reality and film directing. How is that coming along and where are you on the project and when can we see it? So, uh, first question, did you watch it on the Oculus or did you watch it on the I didn't. VR I just, I just saw it on a laptop. He just has his craftulous, those glasses there. Yeah. Me. Is it actually <laughs> that trailer is viewable in VR? Yeah, the, the, the VR trailer is different. So you can go to a jaunt app or somewhere. It's already there out there. I think okay. I can send you that. And you can watch it on the Oculus. So that's 360 3D VR. <sighs> and so what you watched was just the, the making. You didn't watch the real trailer. <laughs> oh, okay. But so, okay. So this whole thing happened when, um, you know, we were just jamming. My wife and Manai, we were sitting and the jamming's like, um, it was, I think, 2015. I had, uh, uh, so she is a big fan of perfumes and she can spot any perfume. She can name any perfume. <laughs> and she's got this incredible ability to do that stuff. And so I think, you know what, we should mix perfume or we should mix smell with cinema. Though I saw that people have done that in the past in 60s and 70s. And uh, this was before I knew that VR existed. And this talk happened and I said, why don't we create a, uh, because laser projectors had come in and I was thinking, why don't we have a projection from left, right, center and top and and have the six cameras doing stuff and the center track and to build an experimental theater in Chennai. And I spoke to some of my friends in LA and uh, they would say, yeah, it's possible. Meanwhile, one of my friends who's the CEO of Odyssey headphones, he came in and said, yeah, I should ch check this out. This is called the VR headset. 
and uh, so I took. I'm not going to wear that stuff and threw it off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I threw it off, and after a month again, I was like, "What is that stuff?" And I bought a phone and put that in. And when I saw what it was, I said, "Oh my god!" So that idea which I had of building a theater is not necessary because this is even more further. It's the this is like probably fifty times more than cinema because it's so real and when it's done right. So I watched around two hundred different VR clips, you know, mm-hmm. stereo, mono, and then came to a conclusion that what works and what doesn't work, how people like normal filmmakers, how they do mistakes of doing certain things which makes you people dizzy, and so the the script was written according to. It's a basic, very, very simple script, a murder mystery, and how how to entice, how to make, oh, how to phrase this, how to take people where they've never gone before, you know, mm. literally, musically, and visually, and so I wrote the script with this in mind, and we did a previous with uh, just dummies here, shot it all over in Chennai, and then cast it in London, in Italy. Hmm. and went to rome and did this in 18 days we finished the whole whole shooting with three camera setups one with the jaunt one with uh, um two red cameras and smaller you know, vr devices mm-hmm. little did i realize that you know the stitching would take 3 years <laughs> yeah i bet to get the quality initially they said oh you just upload it on the internet and it's going to come stitched and we were not happy with the quality, so we literally took it's um, so each second is sixty frames in that to make it more smooth. Yeah. So we are almost on the last four months of post production, and this happened. And then, do you score it? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, just so just so our listeners know, uh, AR is the only guest we've had who's offered to shoot himself in six K and send us the file. So that's yes. the kind of technology we're working with. Um, we are going to take a quick break, but we have much more to talk about with AR. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Nathan Barr. You're listening to Score the Podcast, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're joined by Oscar-winning composer A.R. Rahman, and this is one of... The coolest projects. This is uh, a super band that was started called Super Heavy, and it included AR himself, Mick Jagger, 
Uh, I mean, the, the Damian Marley. I'm really curious how something like this comes together because it's it, it, like the top artists of so many different genres, and um, there, not a lot of projects happen like this. Ar, what was the genesis of uh, Super Heavy coming together? Uh, I think for me, Dave Stewart. You know, mm-hmm. um, so Dave Stewart was a friend of Shaker Kapoor. One of my friends who directed uh, Elizabeth the Golden Age and Bandit Queen. Mm. And we met in London and Dave was introduced to me. And then Dave called me and said, uh, AR, I want to form a band. I've got Mick Jagger with dinner in front of me. Are you willing? And I was like, yes. <laughs> I don't know what my role was. I'm sure a lot of and, people uh, have so that Austin, dream, though. That, how do you just call up Mick Jagger yes. and say, do you want to start a new band? He's got a pretty good band going. So that happened, and so I was asking, what what am I going to do? So you know what, you can you can play, you can sing, you can do some arrangements, and I said, fine. And what happened was, I um, there was a the floods here, and there was a Bombay shooting happened, the mm. horrible thing which happened in oh yeah uh, two thousand eight, and then my my sound engineer passed away, oh, no. who was close to me for eighteen years, you know, and. I was in a void and I was like, I want to get out of this place. It's, it feels like doomsday for me here. First of all, this Bombay thing and this floods here into my studio and my engineer passing away and I needed to get out. And exactly, you know, super heavy sessions happened in Henson Studios that time. And so I, I took the flight. I was jet lagged. I was sitting there and I was seeing Damien Marley and his folks and I could smell cannabis and... <laughs> yes. And here... Living in four different corners of the studio, I had four different cultures. And this side was Dave Stewart with his guitar rig, uh, you know, huge amounts of guitars. And there was Josh Stone. And, and in I feet. was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> but um, the most liberating thing was uh, that actually that one incident, that one experience with 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 a lovely artist like Joss and Damien and Dave and Mick. Uh, I used to compose with my headphones on. I would never allow anyone to listen to what I was doing. At least 18 years, you know, I was so conscious about everything. When when that actually, that session opened up everything. And I felt like there's something new happening here. And this was before the Oscars. Mm. Just four, five, three months before the Oscars. And then I was, and uh, yeah, I think two months before the Oscars. All this happened. No nomination. Nothing was announced. And the second, or yeah, I think the first five days we we did was right, 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 right. So I'd be playing the continuum, or playing a groove, or playing something, a chord progression, and and then it went silent. And then we came back a year later, and then tried to finish all the songs. And I was on the board of Paul Allen. He was mm. kindly hosted us. And we, I think, did a part, part of overdubs in the studio, in the, in the yacht. Wow. On the, you know, the beaches of uh, Greece and Turkey and Rome and I think Italy. So that was a pure rock star uh, experience. Yeah, yeah you know? I imagine. Private, private jets and choppers going on. What was it like working with Mick Jagger? Did you guys spend a lot of time together? Not that much, but whatever we, whatever little we spent, 
I've learned a lot from him. I learned that age is just a number. Mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. And he was uh age is just a number and and the drive to do music at even at that age, you know, like even I'm achieving cult status being a perfectionist. He would just warm up for like a an hour before even coming near the mic, even in the yard. Wow. And I was fascinated by all that stuff. I was like, "Oh, this is what makes them going." Yeah, it's... they have a discipline. Then which... did he teach you any dance moves? Is my question. <laughs> His dance moves are the most unique, right? Um, no, I'm, I'm the I'm the I'm one thing which I'm really bad in life is dancing. That's what my wife says. So oh, that's I never do that. Yeah, we watched the video <laughs> together, and he's dancing. I think you're sitting in a car at one point. Yeah, <laughs> convenient. Um, but we assume that you are dancing inside the car. I love the fact that you're doing that on Paul Allen's yacht and being on jets and how I guess people assume that that's all it is. But then you also tell us that Mick is focused. And I I know that people, not unlike yourself, that achieve this huge level of notoriety, they don't get there accidentally. They get there because of incredible focus yeah. and hard work. And um, it's great that you you learned all that. I mean, it makes me wonder when you said it made you compose differently, being in the room with your headphones off must have been sort of a new experience for writing. And um, I actually remember you took me to a playback of Super Heavy. Um what did you say? Was that the Jim Henson? It was at Jim Henson Studios. It might have been called A and M, and um, yes, and yes. I th- Mick was there, and Josh Stone was there. It was a little room, um, and I remember that, not unlike rock stars do, it was really loud. They played it back <laughs> so loud. It's funny when you said you were coming out with chord progressions because it makes me wonder, Damien. You know the feel on that that song "Miracle Worker" is reggae, straight up reggae. And uh, you think about reggae and raga, and combining them, uh, such a nice vibe to have it be international. That's so great. I know that you're working internationally. You're doing something you mentioned before in Dubai. You have a project in Dubai that I guess has been halted. But what are, yeah, what is so- going on in Dubai? In Dubai, you know, Expo, um, Expo actually promises a lot of stuff. I've been with them for almost now four to five months, and uh, it's probably the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And they have uh, uh, two hundred different pavilions, different countries, mm. and it's a culmination, a melting pot of you know so many different things: knowledge, uh, understanding, and uh, for global consciousness. And so what we are trying to do, uh, I have, I'm working on a couple of projects. The first one is setting up a women's orchestra, hmm. uh, a multicultural women's orchestra, setting up a whole new scoring studio hmm. in the campus with all the top equipment and a big scoring hall. I thought in the Middle East, uh, we, we should have something where mm-hmm. everybody can use from the West or from the East or South, everywhere. You, and you want, you want an artist, though, it's very easy to fly from India or from London, or from France. Mm-hmm. So it's just an Emirates flight away. Yeah. And 
interesting post and set up all the satellite stuff so we can record remotely wow and so that that's happening we designed that and launched it are there players is there a, an orchestra there in dubai that understands the f- routines of film music or are you teaching them? uh the most of them are trained i think most of them are, are can sight read we're just auditioning we're just about to audition when this thing happened hmm. and we're going to resume probably in 3 4 months hopefully when everything settles down it's been postponed for a year so yeah you seem That's- really dedicated to to passing your knowledge on it's very easy for someone to be successful and to just enjoy their life and do what they do but you seem to be really focused on pushing your knowledge and and your abilities out to others why is that so important to you i think by giving you you actually get by giving knowledge or by facilitating things for other people you get the joy which makes gives you reason to live because in this age everything is our soul is left behind and we're running so fast and to catch a soul um we learn things from from other people when we give and even from the students when i sometimes i'm fascinated by the way they sing the way they play or oh, one of the students from a conservatory was on cbs show lady and others from he was on the ellen show and he won a million dollars wow for the yeah you could you could check him out and so all that is super fascinating to see that if i had not bought that big piano and the teacher had not asked for something extraordinary like that and uh, this wouldn't have happened maybe you know and it would have been a compromise so by doing that stuff by signing that check buying the, buying that piano on this conservatory and getting that teacher from you know from LA Mr Chatterjee and by you know joining all this points you you get something beautiful and yeah that's easy in a way but also liberating at, at at some point of your life things are easy and it's better to do that time because they may not be as easy later it is so soulful though you're absolutely right that um i mean my first thought when i hear you say that is well doesn't that take away from your work and doesn't that take time away from you doing music or doesn't that take time away from your creativity but i really understand when you say that actually enhances it and it fulfills you in a way that i can only imagine improves in some way some of your perspectives and your work and also you know you 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 start behaving uh, you start believing human beings you start believing you trusting them they they just are miraculous after a point of them because the trust uh, is both ways complementary you know when you trust people the world trusts you and so my team is set up my my sister is the executive director of the school and we have these beautiful teachers who come from different countries from france Switzerland, Armenia, uh, Scotland, the US, and they all in Chennai, yeah, tanning. <laughs> yes, and, and teaching. And Los Angeles. I think you have a new student coming who, after a long career in film music, is yes. <laughs> going to start at the beginning. Please. I wonder sometimes. Pupil craft. Yeah. Yes, right. Pupil craft <laughs> with Maestro Raman. Sometimes when. Certain artists get involved later in their careers after they've had great success in music and they start doing all the things you're doing, which is contributing to projects and directing and writing. The interest in being 
what they started. A composer can sometimes be pushed aside a little bit and you end up doing lots of other things. I know this intimately because uh, often other things take you away and just being the person at the piano bench seems limited. I wonder for you, do you long for the opportunity to just close the door and score another film? Or do you think that's more occasional now for you or is it in the past for you as these projects unfold in front of you um when you talk about um lay mask it just took me 18 days i took probably three three months of uh, pre-production and writing the script and it was supposed to be a 20 minute thing which became now 70 minutes because mm-hmm. the the beauty of vr and everything so i'm not i have a team which look after looks after all the stitching and everything it was clearly edited even while scripting so i was not i didn't have so so many rushes because it's very expensive to shoot and so that's autopiloted the other movie i didn't want to direct because direction would take away all the interest uh, directing a 2d movie with going to multiple locations and having the whole thing mine would definitely take away from music so i didn't want to direct that mm. and it was a choice because it needs undivided attention and so that's how I'm playing my balance. Things which won't take my mind and I could dive into music anytime. And so there is a director, there was a director, um, Vishwesh Krishnamurti. He internalized the movie and he's living, he lived with it for four years and he did the whole thing. Hmm. And again, amazing team, uh, had an executive producer who would take care of it. And of course, all the key moments I would go and intervene. So I planned my thing very well so that it wouldn't take my music time away because music is my passion that's my everything and that would never happen and also when when you when you are in music too much you lose perspective when you get jaded so going away doing something and coming back to it feels refreshing it's like a reset button love that and you <laughs> yes. Sometimes you just need a cleanse. You need a palate cleanse yeah. to start over. Yep. So I'm not into gambling or drinking or anything because, and for me, this is a gamble is directing a movie, Your right? life. like a VR movie. Not your not, life is not, a gamble. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we we can't let you go without asking about your time with Michael Jackson. Yes. A little birdie told us that you uh, spent some time with Michael Jackson, and we'd love to hear that story. Yeah, I think. When I said about influences, I forgot, definitely forgot what Michael Jackson did to me because uh, for all of us who lived the 80s and in the early 90s, uh, definitely Jackson set the bar so high as a human being. Uh, at that time, doing so many charity concerts and things like that and pushing the boundary for singing, production, music video, and as an artist. And so... I met him, I didn't even meet, I, I think 99, there was a concert, I was invited to perform for the African, or some kind of a concert in Munich, which unfortunately I was supposed to meet him after the concert, but he got hit by a crane or something, hmm. and he wow. was taken to the hospital, so I missed meeting him. Hmm. Even though we performed, he wanted my song to be the encore, which never happened, hmm. and it was a disaster. So that ended there. Years later, I think 10 years later, 2009, when the nominations were announced, I mean, you know, Sam Schwartz, my agent, he was like, AR, do you want to meet someone? So I wanted to pull a fast one and said, okay, let me meet Michael Jackson. 
So I just wanted to test, <laughs> see what my agent could do. Said, yeah, cool. I'll send him an email. So he had his friend Randy, and and Randy sent an email, and uh, nothing happened. Oh, this was before the nominations. Yeah, this was during the promotions. Nothing happened. Nominations happens, and I go again to the uh, to LA to do promote, and and that time uh, Sam says. You know, Michael wants to meet you. Mm. I said my excitement went off because I'm not going to meet Michael because, or on one condition I'll meet him. If I win the Oscar, that time only Oscar, not not Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> I will meet him. Otherwise, I'm not going to meet him. I won't have the face to meet him. And so everything was arranged. Won the Oscar, and then I said, "Okay, you want to meet Michael Jackson now because you won the Oscar." Yeah, of course. So. I was dropped, and Michael opens the door. It was so surreal, and there was Western classical music, all the stuff playing, and, <laughs> and he was very sweet. It was like he was like praising the way I spoke in the Oscars and the progression of Jaiho, and and so I was telling him how I grew up with this music, and he also danced and show like I do everything from the heart, and it was like a stroke of lightning suddenly when he started dancing. We were almost there for like. Two hours, just talking, talking about, um, and that's when he said we should do a song together, like the other world, and and all that stuff happened. And then I met him once more. That's when he got was preparing himself. I wrote a song for him, which uh, I thought he should, but I didn't have the guts to play it, so I didn't play it. <laughs> was this for the This Is It concert, or what was he preparing for? He was, yeah, he was preparing for the This Is It concert, yeah. And he was upbeat, and and but the but the but the song I wrote was very defensive kind of song, so I didn't want to play to him at that mood. I thought the aura would change. And so, did back. you guys ever work together on anything? After all, we were supposed to, unfortunately. But so that you had a plan in the works to to do a song or a some a, like a charitable something like that with a with a cause behind it the, we, we talked about many things i didn't want to i didn't even take a photograph with him i didn't want to intimidate him because i know how shy he was mm. and uh, so he introduced me to his kids and all that happened i think it's one of the most memorable moments of my life i would say I, wow. I, there's a full circle here too because you had had your success in india you came to Los Angeles. You had your tremendous success here in Los Angeles. And I had, unfortunately, of course, didn't know some of the films you'd done and some of the work you'd done until Slumdog, like many Americans. And Sam Schwartz once told me, do you know what it's like to be with AR? He said, not only is he this soulful incredibly spiritual, incredibly modest man. But if you drive somewhere with him and he gets out of the car, it's like <laughs> Michael Jackson has just arrived in some neighborhoods. People come out of stores. People get on the street. A.R. Raman is there. He's like the Michael Jackson of India. That's is that true, A.R.? Can you go anywhere without being talked to? Uh... I don't want to believe that because when I'm in the <laughs> studio, I want to be a nobody and that helps. Uh, it is true because um, when you do a concert, when you do when 50,000 people come in and 70,000 people come to a concert, recently we had a 
there. I don't even forget which one. Like people just uh, because I think music does that. It's not me. Uh, the music goes intermingles with the soul and it becomes part of their existence. And so that's one of the problems because when when that happens and even if you say something bad about the song which you wrote written, like uh, that could have been like that, they become so different. So how can you say that, sir? Because we lived with that song and we lived with that score, and that's so beautiful. Because I I tell my my uh, my team as tell them that, you know, after you we do this and we we let it out, it doesn't belong to us. You know, it has so much of tentacles. It goes to so many people's lives, and so we have to be so careful and and having a lens at everything so that it's beautiful and it's perfect. Well, we are, we are so lucky to have you. And once again, your answer showed how modest you are. Yes, he is Michael Jackson. And yes, <laughs> they do go crazy when they see him. And I can understand why, because not only are you a wonderful human, but your music has touched the world and the world has danced to it too. And I think the very first thing you said about bringing Indian music to, uh, to a Western audience is something you've achieved. I mean, Jai Ho was a huge hit and broke through. And now you hear Jay-Z and different rappers using Indian beats and samples. And you've really accomplished something. And I'm absolutely certain that Lim Musk is going to accomplish something for VR. In yeah. fact, I think I can, I can see the headline now. It's going to be AR-VR. That's what we're going to be <laughs> oh. looking at. <laughs> Wait a minute. ARVR is coming up. You better get up. that trademark right now. Get the t-shirts printing. I just loved our time together, and I love seeing you and love knowing how well you're doing and how beautiful the work is that you're contributing to the yep. world. So thank you so Please much. Please stay thank safe you. out there. A uh, reminder to our listeners to follow us, uh, Twitter, at Score the Podcast, Instagram, at Score Movie, Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary, and send those questions in, score the mailbox at epicleft.com. Robert's waiting patiently by the mailbox for those questions. I can't wait. Stick around after today's show. We're going to play you a little clip from Spitfire Audio so you can elevate your music. Robert, take Thank it you away. so much. Thanks to Kevin Doucette, who helped us out, set this up, and... Uh our great thanks and love to A.R. Raman. We can't wait to see your concert next year, A.R. We're going to be there here in L.A. Sure. Yes, Absolutely. We'll be, we'll be in the front row cheering, mobbing you. <laughs> hey, Kenny, Carol, Kevin, A.R., thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Kenny, I, I always want to say a shout out and a thank you to spitfire audio they're such a great fit for this show they're a wonderful sponsor and they collaborate with people like hans zimmer and the bernard herman state to build sample libraries that elevate your music you're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like and as an exclusive to score listeners that's all of you spitfire audio is offering 20 percent off your first order with them and it's good on over 50 of their libraries just go to spitfireaudio.com and when you're checking out use the promo code score 2020 right now we're going to play you a little clip from the spitfire solo strings package check it out Thank you. 
Again, go to SpitfireAudio.com and use that promo code SCORE2020 to save 20% off your first order with Spitfire products. We will see you next week on Score the Podcast.